thinking, I can't believe this is in my Bible. And I'm here to say, you should believe that it's in your Bible. Because God created us to be attracted to people of the other sex. The key is, is can we appreciate beauty without making it self-centered, selfish, and sinful? Can we look at someone and say, well, that's a beautiful person and not take it to places it's not supposed to be? Pastor Daniel is digging into the Song of Solomon today, where Solomon is describing the beauty of the one he loves. God created beautiful things and he made beautiful people, and it's not wrong to admire them. We were created with an eye for beauty, and we can honor God as we appreciate it. But just like all good things, it can be twisted by the enemy. If you want to rediscover beauty and its purpose, stick with us for today's message. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in the book of Song of Solomon, chapter 4, as he continues his message, A Lover's Song. You have dove's eyes behind the veil. Dove's eyes. Now, when you think about a dove, of course, it conveys a sense of gentleness or tenderness. You think about doves, what do they do? They coo. And so what he's saying is like, your eyes are tender and they communicate. Now look, if you came here with your spouse, I want you to go look in their eyes. Go ahead. Don't give them the evil eye either. This is church. People's eyes speak, don't they? When you look into someone's eyes, it tells you more about them than just the words that come on out. See, He's saying, look, your eyes are, your tenderness is revealed in your eyes, and your eyes are speaking to me. But notice, where are her eyes? They're behind your veil. Now think about this. This is important. See, there is still a separation between this man and this woman. See, in that culture, women wore veils as a sign of modesty. Right? There is... They are betrothed, but they are not, their marriage has not been consummated. Now remember that, right? In, in the biblical times, they did marriage differently than we do it today. Where uh, a dad and a mom, they would have kids and they would arrange a marriage. And then at some point that marriage would become legal. They would be betrothed, but they, it had not been consummated. So it's different from the way we do marriage. And you would imagine that this man and this woman, they are legally married, but they haven't consummated their relationship yet. So he's saying, your eyes are tender. They are communicating, but they are behind a veil. Now, what's the application for this? Ladies, our culture, our culture wants to demean you by making you just a body. That's what, that's what our culture does. It says, look, you are no more than skin on bone. So show more skin because that's all you're good for. But that's not what our Bibles teach. See, we know the Bible teaches that modest is hottest. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it. Now, when I say modest is hottest, that doesn't mean you got to walk around with a potato sack on or a little schmata and God forbid you wear makeup. That's not what it means. 
But the idea is, is we, ladies, you need to take the way you present yourself from the way God sees you and not what the world tells you. Because the world just says you're just a body and you know and I know that you are way more than that. If you were just skin on bone, Jesus would never have died and risen again for you. But our culture demeans women. And listen, the research about, it's all over. I was just reading a, a study about sexuality as it relates to girls and obesity. And really what they keep coming down to is that women in our culture have a tendency to think that all they are is a body. And then you end up seeing all these airbrushed women on magazines. They really don't look like that, but they make you look like that. And all it is is show everything. That's the only way. you got to show everything so that nobody has to wonder what you are. But the Bible says, listen, your beauty needs to be reserved until the right time. So, ladies, you can still be stylish and God-honoring. But you have to fight against a culture that says, show it, let nobody leave anything up to chance because all you're good for is to be noticed by a guy because all you are is a body. We have to fight against that. I love the fact her eyes are expressive, they are tender, but they are behind a veil. And in that culture, a veil enhanced beauty. It didn't detract from it. Because the veil says, it's not open season yet. This is not all yours. It's mine. And our culture has a broken view of this. Now, it doesn't only stop with the eyes. Look what it says next. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Now, listen, I'm here to tell you, if you tell your wife her hair looks like a goat's hair, (laughs) we'll see you in the office for counseling. That's no good. It's no good. But think about the idea. A goat in that culture was dark. They were black. Their hair color was black. And so the idea is a flock of goats coming down Mount Gilead. The idea is you, you got great hair. That's what he's saying. He's saying your hair is long. It's like, it's like sheep going down a mountain. And in that culture, modern day Israel, Palestine, the people there without product, most of them have dark hair, dark features. And so the idea here, he's saying, man, you got great hair. Dark, black, flowing over your shoulders. It's a sense of vitality. But of course, he doesn't stop there. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, which have come up from washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. So what does this mean? It means, look, you got a full mouth of teeth. (laughs) And they're nice and white. That's what it means. Now, listen, if you are a few teeth short of a full mouth, God still loves you, and so do we. <laughs> listen, it's not a problem. But he's admiring her beauty. He's like, man, you got great, not only, not only are your eyes tender and your hair is beautiful, but you got a great mouth. It's like, praise God for whitening strips. That's what he's saying. <laughs> now, okay, I'm only part of the way through this section. And some of you are thinking, I can't believe this is in my Bible. And I'm here to say, you should believe that it's in your Bible. Because God created us to be attracted to people of the other sex. The key is, is can we appreciate beauty without making it self-centered, selfish, and sinful? Can we look at someone and say, well, that's a beautiful person, and not take it to places it's not supposed to be? See, you read this, I can't, like, some of you are like, this is so objectifying to women. No, it's not. 
He thinks she's beautiful. There ain't nothing wrong with that. See, but our culture wants to say, God forbid, you, you know, like you can't think someone is beautiful. But the problem in our culture is our culture in the name of freedom is actually in bondage. Because freedom says every urge you have, you have to live it out. But you and I know that that's not freedom, that's slavery. True freedom is saying, I have this urge and I know what the proper bounds in which this is supposed to exist to honor God, myself, and that person and their family. See, this man is enjoying her beauty, but he's not taking it over a line that is unacceptable. See, the church will tell you, you can't ever admire someone's beauty. That's sinful. No, it's not. It's about what you do with it. It's about what you do with it. It honors God when you see somebody who you think is beautiful and say, God, thank you for such beauty. But you don't take it farther than that. But our culture is broken because everybody who has a desire in our culture lives it out. That's why we live in a pornographic culture. That's why we live in a culture where delayed gratification is an unknown part of life. Because we live in a culture that we're so used to being free that everyone's in bondage because nobody knows how to curb their desires. Because God doesn't say not ever. He just says not yet. He says not now. And we have to learn that. Because it honors God. Listen, when I first saw my bride, I'm like, man, she is unbelievably beautiful. Praise God and take it past that. You enjoy someone's beauty, but you and you honor God for it. That almost is unheard of. You, I even say that, and I realize people are like, wow. But that's the way God articulates this for us. He's like, man, your eyes, your hair, your teeth. Goes on, verse 3. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. He said, man, your mouth is attractive too. It's like a strand of scarlet. It's wholesome and beautiful. Your temples, your face is beautiful. And he goes on, and this is where it really gets wild. Your neck is like a tower, the Tower of David, built for an armory, on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Now, he's not saying that your neck is outlandishly long. Because <laughs> when, when you read that, you know, it's like, your neck is like the Tower of David. Flirt with God's daughter, man, it's good. The idea of the Tower of David, it speaks of it being statue-like, being awe-inspiring. See, he's admiring her neck, and so much so, he's like, and it, your neck is long, and it's got like many bucklers, as many shields. He's admiring her jewelry that she's wearing. And he's saying, that neck is awe-inspiring. Now, I know this is the verse you've all been waiting for. <laughs> verse 5, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Now, you're all like, I wonder what Fusco's going to say about this verse. <laughs> it's the one verse in the whole thing I'm speechless about. If you think of the picture of two fawns feeding among the lilies, really the only literal thing is that there's two of them. <laughs> but the idea of two fawns feeding, it has a picture of tenderness, 
See, this isn't pornographic. This is sweet. This isn't erotica. This is something beautiful. Now, I'll be honest with you. If you're married, you should talk to your spouse this way. They like, it's a beautiful thing to say, you, you are beautiful. I love your eyes. I love your mouth. Even though not all your calves had twins. It's okay. They're a little coffee stained, but I love those coffee stained teeth. And then your neck is a wonder. It's a wonder. And if you're married, you could say, listen, your breasts are like two fawns feeding among the lilies. That's a good thing. Now, I'm going to lay off of saying anything else by that. But you might want to say, I would like you to invite me over for dinner. Never mind. Everyone's horrified. Okay. That's for a married couple. Because listen, the act of making love within marriage is a virtue. It is an act of worship when you're married. You realize that. I'm not being coarse. That is an act of worship when you are married. Because the joining together of a man and a woman as one flesh physically is the physical embodiment of what God has done for us as Christ as the church. We shouldn't be ashamed to say that Christians get to have the best lovemaking in the world because Jesus is at the center of it. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. We shouldn't be too, too holy to see what God is doing here. See, this king is admiring her beauty. And he's like, man, you are absolutely gorgeous. Why does this make us uncomfortable? Because we're so used to seeing our sexuality as dirty and broken and not as beautiful and redeemed by Christ. And brothers and sisters, if you're here today and you love the Lord, you need to learn this. Because the only place you're going to get this is not from our society and definitely not from the news media and all that stuff. It's only going to come from the Spirit of God, from the Word of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We need to start to pray, Lord, why do I giggle? Why do I get uncomfortable? Why do I, I can't believe he would say that. Why? Because we've been taught the wrong things by a culture that doesn't get it. And the problem is, is we all swim in it every day. We're so used to it. It's everywhere. And God is like, I have a more excellent way for you. Why? Because the physical act of making love is an act of worship. And Satan always wants to thwart worship, doesn't he? He always wants to get our eyes off the ball, so to speak. And we need to say, God, I want to honor you with this part of my life. Now, that's all like the real world stuff. Remember I talked about this is really about God's love being extravagant? Think about the time the Spirit of God took to inspire all these words. It reminds us of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. This is what it says. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, it's saying that God's love is so profound that it's incomprehensible. That you're going to spend your whole life trying to understand it. You're still never going to understand it. But you need to seek out understanding it. Because God's love is that profound. It's that multi-sided. It's that profound. 
But God's love is extravagant. Now, in verse 6, we get the chorus. Now, in some of your Bibles, it has it all together with verses 1 to 5. But some of your Bibles have the paragraph breaks. You'll notice that there'll be a bold number on the numbering. Verse 6 is its own paragraph. And it says, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Now, not only is it a new paragraph, but this first line, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, the Shulamite, the woman, says it, the exact same line in Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 17. So I take this as her response to him. Notice what she says, until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Now, Think about what this is saying here. He is admiring her beauty, and she's saying, until the day comes, until the darkness is gone, I'm going up to the mountain. It's not. She's saying it's not time. Now, by the end of this chapter, it is time. And her statement is different. But at this point, it's not time. She's like, until the day dawns and all the shadows are gone, I'm going to go to the mountain. What does this teach us? That we need to wait for the Lord. We need to wait for the Lord. Now, first let me give you the spiritual principle and then I'm going to apply it to our lives. So the spiritual principle is this. I believe one of the biggest issues we all have in this generation is we actually don't know how to trust God very well. We believe God, but we've been taught by pastors, by churches, we've just kind of believed given the flow of our culture, that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, everything's going to work out all the ways you want it to. But I'm here to tell you, that's just a lie. That's not real. I don't want to be like a downer, but if you follow Jesus, everything is not going to work out the way that you want it to. That's honest. It never does. Your life is not going to work out the way you want it to. You know what's going to happen? Your life is going to work out exactly the way God wants it to. And he has promised that he's going to be with you every step of the way. And in that sense, your life has totally worked out. But too often we say, listen, give your, put your faith and trust in Jesus, and your life is going to be amazing. And we translate that, I mean, I'm going to follow Jesus, and everything's going to be exactly the way I want it to. I'm going to make a million bucks before I'm 25. I'm going to retire at 29 to a beach with my beautiful wife who never gets older. And I'm going to have all the, you know, it's like we translate this kind of consumeristic idea and we put it into our spirituality. I'm here to tell you, there's many of you who you're going to pray about things for the rest of your life and it's never going to happen. Here's the question. Will you still worship God if he doesn't do everything you ever thought he should do for you? That's where we know who our real God is. And we live in a world that says, if you complain loud enough and long enough, everyone's going to do what you want. And we do the same thing with God. When God says, look, I want you to learn how to trust me, even if it doesn't work. I know, I remember for me, I wasn't a Christian. My mother got cancer. I was in college. I was 19 years old. First time I ever remember praying was being like, look, I don't know if anyone's out there. I'm probably just talking to myself. Can you heal my mom? And my mom died two years later. How many people have an experience like that? Well, God didn't hear my prayer because I am really God and God needs to bow down to me. 
Many of us feel that way. Many of you are upset with God because God isn't doing what you want. But here's the thing. If he's God, he is not responsible to do what you want. Our job is to say, God, I don't understand. I would trade this in, but whatever you're doing, I'm going to worship and trust you. We need to learn how to wait upon the Lord and say, God, even though I don't get it, I trust you. It reminds me of Psalm 130, verses 5 to 8, which says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. He shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. See, you read that, right? God promised, I'm going to redeem you from your iniquities. And then Jesus comes, and Jesus is not the Messiah that they wanted. He didn't throw the Romans out. But he fulfills his word, but not in a way that they ever thought he would. See, you and I, we need to learn how to believe in God. And I'm here to tell you, God is not going to do everything you want him to do. He's not. Because God does not bow his knee to your will or my will. What God will do is he says, I will be with you as I fulfill what I am desiring to do in and through your life. And I wanted to really bring that out because I watch our lives as American Christians. And we just think that God is like our stockbroker. Sell, buy. We're, and as if God's supposed to just jump every time we have an idea. And that's not believing in God. That's believing in ourselves and putting a Jesus veneer on it. We need to learn how to wait on the Lord. Trust him. Now, to bring it down to the real life as it relates to our sexuality, here's the deal. If you ain't married, they need to wait. If you are not married, you need to wait. Now, here's what I want to do. For those of you who are in here who are single, right? If the guy that you're with doesn't love you enough to wait, this is what I want you to do. I want you to poke him really hard in the eye. And I told all of our pastors I was going to do this. So starting this today... If we see a guy with one red eye, we're going to come give him a talking to. (laughs) Seriously, though. See, God doesn't say not ever. He says not now. I know what the problem is when people are not like we live in a culture. We live in a culture where you are a rebel. You are completely different if you're willing to wait. And I'm encouraging you to be rebellious. Be rebellious against the world that says just give yourself away. It's no big deal. You know, it's funny, you ask anybody who's ever done that, they all tell you it is a big deal. It is a big deal. Jesus is real. Today, Pastor Daniel shared with us that the act of making love is an act of worship when it is done within marriage. The joining together as one flesh is the physical embodiment of what God has done for us as a church. We shouldn't be too holy to see what God is doing. We're used to seeing our sexualities broken and dirty. But God has redeemed that too. God has a more excellent way for you today. Hey everybody, Pastor Daniel here. I realize that there are many of you 
you're not a born again follower of Jesus. You've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. But as you've been listening, you've been saying to yourself, I want to begin to follow Jesus. I want to help you do that right now. We're going to pray a simple prayer that just acknowledges who Jesus is in your life. Pray this prayer with me. Say, Jesus, I'm giving you my life. Thank you for saving me. I believe in you, your life, your death on the cross, and your resurrection. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who just received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I'm so excited for you. I want to help you take your next steps with him. So pull out your mobile phone, text the word SAVED to 51400, S-A-V-E-D to 51400. And my team will get in touch with you. We want to get some more resources in your hands to help you on this journey. Thanks for joining us today. Next time, Pastor Daniel will show us that though the man in this chapter is admiring the beauty of the woman, She replies with, until it's morning, I'm going up to the mountain. She tells him that it isn't time yet, but the time is coming. We need to wait for the Lord. The spiritual application is that God doesn't always do what we want when we want. We need to wait on God's timing in every aspect of our lives. Well, that's all the time we have for today's broadcast. On behalf of Pastor Daniel and the entire production team, we invite you to join us again for the next edition of Jesus is Real Radio.